All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Now the thing about time is that time is with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. And again, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making this the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. And we want to thank our sponsors for the second hour of today's show. They are Crocodile Gold, Gold Bullion Development, Legend Gold, was formerly North Atlantic Resources, Barkerville Gold, Great Panther Resources, and Millrock Resources, and we'll be talking to Millrock uh, CEO later in the show, in the last hour of today's show. Well, uh, Adrian, at the break, we uh, we talked a little bit about the Fabian Socialist, uh, the uh, the same goal as the Bolsheviks had uh, to put uh, the a ruling elite, a very uh, you know very very uh, well let's say uh, well bred group of people with the right degrees and the right uh, genetics, I suppose even, some would say. Uh, sounds a little bit like um, the other side in World War II, looking at genetics and having the right kind of people rather than, certainly doesn't sound like a democracy, certainly doesn't sound like the republic that the United States was uh, started under with its constitution. Uh, but we had the Fabian Socialists, so there's this notion of having maybe socialism light, you know, we won't call it communism, we won't, we won't have create an in create an idea of something that's very nice and gentle and good for everybody and peaceful. We can all get along very nicely in a Fabian socialist society. However, it's not to say that those behind the scenes aren't pulling some dirty tricks now and then. And I think of uh, John Perkins, who we had on this show, talked about the new model, the post-World War II model, in which um, you know, the CIA was employed with Kermit Roosevelt to uh, destabilize the government and elected government, a democratically elected government in Iran, because the uh, Mossadegh took the oil away from uh, from BP and said, "Look, look, this is our oil. Get lost." Uh, BP didn't like it very much, so um, the, the, the corporate interest 
uh, went to the Eisenhower administration and uh, the CIA worked uh, to destabilize that elected government and in came the Shah of Iran, who was a brutal dictator and, uh, and, and was there, but we got our oil. Uh, the oil started to flow again. Now, let me ask you, with all that's going on now, and you know, right now the hot spot has been now for the last couple of months, is the Middle East. Uh, do, you, do you think something similar to that may be going on behind the scenes, a destabilization process? Uh, it seems a little curious that all of these countries are having trouble at once, doesn't it? Well, yeah, you know, that's, that's, uh, I think that we have to be careful about any over, overly simplified uh, observations or even answers to that key question that you are making, because very often we tend to think, hey, there's something behind the scenes. So when you say there's something behind the scenes, in comes that image of somebody scheming uh, in secrecy, and then out come the conspiracy theory uh, accusations, and the whole thing just seems to go, you know, it, 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 to, to become overtly confusing. I would say that part of the problem nowadays, and this has a lot to do with the Fabian Society, which, as uh, you were saying, and as Ed Griffin describes, uh, proposed gradual socialism. They propose everything, doing things gradually. It has a lot to do that with the fact that if you want to do major worldwide things gradually, that takes a lot of time. And if it takes a lot of time, you need something which is called long-term planning. And when I say long-term planning, I mean 20 years, 40 years, maybe even 100 years, two or three generations. Whilst all of us, you and me included, and probably all your listeners, when we went to public school, I went to the New York City public school system, my, my elementary and junior high, and, and high school, and, and even when you go to college, the world over, we are taught to be short term thinkers. So when you are uh, educated to be a short-term thinker, you just cannot seem to identify, you can't seem to see, it happens to everybody, the long-term planning, because there is such a long distance between cause and effect. So, uh, and, and what happens is, is we can't see it, we tend to think of it as, oh, this is something secret, this is something conspirational. All we have to do is just that paradigm shift so that we start understanding how they work, because they know that they can set into motion something in 1945 that will only come to fruition in 1995 or maybe in, in 2005. In other words, world government, the seeds of world government were planted right after World War II, and they are only coming to fruition now. Why do I say this? Because this is something that a lot of people are losing sight of. The fact that this long-term planning is right in front of our noses, they are doing everything out in the open, and we cannot seem to see it. So, for example, uh, I think there are many telltale signs that we should keep in mind, and I'll just give you one from here, Latin America. We underwent in the 50s or 60s and early 70s military coups all at the same time. They were all like uh, Mahmoud Mossadegh that you were just mentioning from Iran. By the way, VP used to be called British Petroleum, and originally was born as Anglo-Iranian uh, oil company. You know, that's why it goes way back to Iran. So sure. we, we had military coups all at the same time in Argentina, in Chile, in Brazil, in Uruguay, in Paraguay, in Bolivia, in Peru. And then all of a sudden, in came the 80s. 
uh, the bipolar world was on the way out. The Soviet Union was already earmarked for uh, the demise of the USSR because globalization was going to come in and the model was going to be the TV set in every living room. So it was going to be the American model. So again, simultaneously in the 80s, all at the same time, all these countries got rid of their military with the help of the United States, who originally placed them there, and they all became, quote, democratic, unquote. Argentina, Chile, Brazil, Uruguay, Paraguay, Bolivia, Peru. I mention this because when I see simultaneity, as we've seen it in North Africa and in the Middle East, in Egypt, in Tunisia, in Algeria, in Libya, in uh, uh, Bahrain, in Yemen, in Oman, all at the same time, I tend to become suspicious. Because although there is a genuine feeling on the part of the people of Egypt, the people of all those countries, to get rid of their old dinosaur dictators, I think that there is a hidden agenda there, or a long-term agenda, I should say. And Hillary Clinton said it outright, and she said it very, very openly, right before her trip to... Uh, to, uh, to, to uh, Tunisia and Egypt, where she said, we want to make sure that Tunisia and Egypt have, and I quote, the kind of democracy that we want to see. So I say, okay, now I understand what's happening in North Africa and what's happening in the Middle East. The United States, for different reasons, as, as, as the seat of the global um, world, coming world government, they have decided through the trilateral Clintons and the Bilderberg Clintons and the Obama puppets, and all the, the Council on Foreign Relations uh, gang, that they want to get rid of these old authoritarian regimes and replace them with, quote, the kind of democracy that we want to see, which is basically democratic vote-counting systems where all the candidates are locals who are very, very uh, carefully picked. They are financed. Their campaigns are financed. They are given a good image in the mainstream media, and they are put into power to do the calling of the global power elite as Hosni Mubarak did in Egypt, but he had already become too old and he was all very difficult to sustain. Because we went through that with our military regimes, just as we are going through that now with our so-called democratic governments. Mm -hmm. So what do we do, Adrian? Uh, the policy of the U.S. and the, and the larger Anglo-American empire, for lack of better words, uh, lack of better terms, do we back uh, some pretty brutal dictators until the point in which they lose control and then we then we turn around and make it look like we are the champions of the people and liberty uh, for, for individuals. Is that, is that the modus operandi? Well, that is certainly what they did with Hosni Mubarak, because if Mr. Obama only discovered this January that Hosni Mubarak's regime was anti-democratic, authoritarian, yeah. and was not playing clean, I mean, what was he looking at for the last 30 years? Right. So you have friendly regimes in that in that part of the world you have unfriendly regimes and then you have some which are so and so so for example uh, algeria is in the middle it's more or less neutral egypt was pro american saudi arabia is very pro american and they're going to, any change there is going to wreak a lot of havoc kuwait is pro american syria and iran are obviously anti american or anti system and mr gaddafi in particular he was anti us but he had a specific problem uh, you smack mm -hmm. in the middle of the uh, Mediterranean Sea. Libya has the largest oil reserves in North Africa, even more than Nigeria, which is owned by Shell Oil, and it literally floats on, 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 on oil. So definitely Libya is in the wrong place at the wrong time. However, the way it's being done, it's being done so clumsily that you can see, you can start seeing all the risks and the cracks between the global power elite itself, where Mr. Sarkozy, all of a 
sudden came out wanting to bomb uh, Libya to smithereens. And let's not forget that Mr. Sarkozy is, uh, I can't say former, because that's not the ethical word. He is Mossad, he is CIA, and once you're in the Mossad, uh, Israeli Mossad, in the, in the American CIA, you never come out. So he is still is an agent of those, of those countries. Uh, mm-hmm. Britain came into attack, America was dragged into attack, but then you have countries like Germany that are taking some distance from that. So you can start seeing all the rifts. Same with Italy. Uh, Spain is always there trying to follow the Brits, so the, the Spain is not so much of a problem. So, you know, for every action, there is a reaction. And all this clumsiness, I think you would say, okay, so they're doing something stupid. And you would say yes and no, because in a way, what they are achieving, not just in the countries that are under attack, like Libya, Egypt, and all the other countries, and in, in, in even the Arab countries in the Middle East, but they are whose net sovereign nation states they are eroding. But at the same time, they are eroding the credibility of the sovereign nation states of the United States of America, Great Britain, France, and others. And that ties in wonderfully with the global power elites planning towards world government. Don't forget, they are willing to pay the price for everything they do. Just as when you and I buy a new car, we're willing to pay the price because we want to have a new car. Mm-hmm. If, if, to, if to get rid of and, and erode sovereignty, they have to pay the price of higher inflation, higher recession, higher oil prices, a lot of dead soldiers and so forth, they're willing to pay the price the way they've been doing that for years. We have to, um, the best way to understand your adversary, I won't say enemy because it's too strong a word, maybe for many people, is to get into his shoes and try to figure out what his thought process is. Uh, and, and, and from then, you can start understanding what is happening. And it ties in with a centuries-old, because it's more than a century, uh, strategy proposed by the Fabian Society, George Bernard Shaw, Sidney and Beatrice Webb, all the old socialists coming out of Cambridge and coming out of Oxford, who in turn founded the Business Roundtable in Britain, who in turn are tied in with, the Ro- with Cecil Rhodes and the Rothschilds, and who in turn helped to finance the founding in 1919-1920 of the Council on Foreign Relations, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, and today on a much more ambitious global stance, they are the people who sit on the Trilateral Commission and who meet at the Bilderberg Conference. Well, these are, uh, these are organizations, of course, that we've talked about on this show fairly frequently when, uh, unfortunately, I think there's a mix-up in the time, but Daniel Estlin, who's the, probably the foremost authority on the Bilderbergs, uh, if Daniel may be with us in 15 minutes. We're going to try to get at least some comments from him if he's available. Uh, but, you know, it, it's, it really is sort of a confusing picture, though, and there are certainly powers that are struggling against each other, but Libya uh, and Gaddafi, they're not going down easily. Do you think it's more because of the clumsiness, as you put it, that's, uh, that is making it uh, easier for Gaddafi to stick around? Or, uh, you know, are there some real, real um, let's say, sovereign interests that are being defended here? Well, it, it's a bit of both, and I think if we draw some parallels to not only what happened in Latin America, but also to what happened in the former Soviet bloc, that might be useful. Uh, when, when the Trilateral Commission was formed in 1973 by David Rockefeller, based on the ideology proposed by the Sovietologist Zbigniew Brzezinski, Brzezinski had already proposed in a 1971 book called Between Two Ages, The Role of America in the Technotronic Age. He had dis- defined and described a whole plan on how to bring down the Soviet Union without firing a shot. And a lot of it had to do with changing the cultural paradigms of young people. 
So, mm-hmm. if you make the parallel, that happened also in Argentina, where everybody had meekly accepted in the 60s and the 70s military regimes openly backed by the United States of America with local military officers trained in America, and everybody... Uh, accepted it, and, they, and I think the power elite said, okay, we have that control. If we want to shift over to democracy, we're going to have to give a very new cultural paradigm, especially towards young people. In came the, the, the human rights uh, campaigns. In came a whole new way of thinking. And it was young people who started saying, we don't want the military anymore. We want democracy. We want democracy. And they were able to achieve that with the younger generations. The same mm-hmm. thing is happening throughout North Africa. It is younger people who are saying, you know, we're fed up with the Hosni Mubarak's, and we're fed up with all these old-timers who've been in power for 40, 50, 60, 70 years, whatever. So in the case of Gaddafi, it's an in-between point, because a lot of people support Gaddafi because his social program was quite good. As a matter of fact, it has a lot of points in common with Argentina's Peronism, the difference being Mr. Gaddafi designed something for his tribal country. I personally don't understand it. I, I must even say I personally don't even like it. But that's my problem. It seemed to work for the Libyan people. It seemed to look after their needs. Libya has one of the highest uh, levels of education. Libya had a good medical system. Mind you, the Libyans weren't doing that bad. The problem being that they are not a Western society. And one of the uh, inabilities of uh, Americans and Europeans and Argentinians is we find it so difficult to, to, to imagine that there are people who are different from us. There are people who do, for whom... American-style democracy doesn't work. There are people who do not want to see 100-floor skyscrapers dotting their land. It just doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, people are not all standardized. People want mm-hmm. to have quality of life, but there are differences. And even if you don't understand them, and I'll be very honest with you, I have a hard time trying to understand Muslim uh, society and even mo- Muslim uh, culture and so forth. But that's my problem. If it works mm-hmm. for them, let them do it. That's why I get so, so, so concerned when I find Hillary Clinton saying, Saying Egypt and Tunisia and everybody must have the sort of democracy that we want to see. She even went on to say, and I quote, Hillary Clinton stressed the difficulties of nurturing the institutions that support democracy, including robust political parties, a free media, and the rule of law. Nearly all according to America. And a free media is not what a lot of countries, certainly not what Argentina wants, because if it's going to be a free media like Fox News and ABC, CBS, NBC, that's no good. It's not even any good for Americans. So, you know, we have to start being respectful of the way other people cultures work the way other people are and that is probably part of the problem so in Libya you have younger people who are definitely fed up with uh, Gaddafi I'm not going to defend Gaddafi because he's probably you know, uh, way beyond his time and he should go but the problem is that uh, the, 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 the real risk they run is that they might get rid of Gaddafi and something much worse come in, what might come in, 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 in his place mm-hmm. well uh, certainly when they put in the Shah of Iran uh, and you know that sort of backfired longer term uh they lose control and hillary clinton again i heard in the news today was was really calling out to all these different factions that you're talking about the sarkozy's of this world and various others i guess to say we need a unified effort against libya so i guess she's concerned that what you're talking about is uh you know the dissension among the western countries even um uh but she she clearly wants to see Libya go. So Libya, Syria, certainly, as you say, anti-West pretty much, and of course Iran. 
Um, and, and the cultural thing, I guess that that's really, I mean, it comes down to who's in charge, right? And uh, if this ruling elite that the Fabian socialists uh, talked about and the people you're talking about are basically Western, uh, I wouldn't say uh, so, sort of, I suppose, socialist in their own way, um, then, then these sort of radical Islam doesn't work very well, does it? You have to try to change but, but, Islam, and it seems to me that what we're seeing is a propaganda move to try to educate Islam to uh, to more of a Western culture, uh, cultural uh, value system. Yeah, but you see, Jay, I, I, I can understand that a lot of people, you know, I don't like the Gaddafi. Maybe you and I and a lot of people who are listening to us, we don't even like Gaddafi either. But mm -hmm. Why does America and France and Britain intervene militarily, killing people to help the rebels get rid of Gaddafi, and yet Saudi Arabia just invaded Bahrain, and no, I can't see anybody invading Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia did even something worse. Saudi Arabia did with Bahrain what Saddam Hussein did with Kuwait in 1990, in August of 1990. Why do we have these double standards where we say Hosni Mubarak, he also killed a lot of people. Remember mm -hmm. when, the, uh, when the police came in charging against the people in Tahrir Square, killing Egyptians on behalf and in the name of Hosni Mubarak, and I don't see Obama and Sarkozy and David Cameron being morally concerned about that. They just said, oh, let them sort it out themselves. Why? Because Hosni Mubarak was one of their guys. Hosni Mubarak was pro-Israel. Gaddafi is not pro-Israel. Hosni Mubarak is pro-U.S. Gaddafi is not pro-U.S. And again, uh, it, it even tells you a lot about the, the global power structure. Why did Russia abstain from voting against the intervention, uh, or for, rather for the intervention uh, against uh, Libya, when America time and again unconditionally blocks any, will always veto any UN resolution against the state of Israel. Mm -hmm. I can understand China because China has a problem. China depends on Saudi oil, so if they voted uh, against America, it would have been also voting against Saudi Arabia, and that could get them into trouble. But why did Russia do that? Do that? So it might also point to certain more subtle aspects into the global power elite's ongoing problems as they negotiate with Russia and as they negotiate with China. So one of the things that people have to realize is that the moral, uh, uh, so shall we say, the moral logic behind all of this, that they're doing this to protect the Libyan people, is an outright lie because it is a double standard. They do it mm -hmm. against Libya because they happen not to like Gaddafi, and I'm sure they would do it against Ahmadinejad if it affected Iran, but they will not intervene in the case of Egypt, they will not intervene in the case of Saudi Arabia and Bahrain, and they would not intervene if something similar happened in Kuwait. Hmm. Well, it's, uh, I mean, it certainly has to have something to do with economics, though, and uh, you, you, so or what you're saying is that maybe there's some subtle uh, or some tentacles that have gotten into Russia that is sort of uh, convincing Russia to, to go with the West. Yeah, in a way, uh, probably, you know, uh, or there might be other things that are being negotiated. I think that it's, uh, you know, his history is often the best, uh, the best teacher. Uh, maybe we should go back and think to the old Cold War days, how the Russians pulled back of putting their missiles in, in, uh, in Cuba. Uh, and that was also in exchange for other things that were in Berlin, things that were done in, in uh, Turkey, and so forth. Major powers will negotiate, and they will use this, uh, different countries as pawns. 
pawns. And it certainly happened in the Cold War era. And I wouldn't be surprised if Russia might say, okay, I'll be hands off on this. I'll abstain. But that will, that might have, I'll bring in further Russian leverage against the missiles that have been planted by, the, by NATO and Poland aimed against Russia. So, you know, we, there's a whole lot of things. We tend to think in, 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 in a very uh, silo-like mentality. We just take one issue at a time. Today, mm-hmm. it's North Africa. Tomorrow, it's the Wall Street meltdown. Day after tomorrow, it's Chechnya or some crisis in Poland because of the missiles that uh, NATO is, is, is aiming against the Russians. But we have to see the whole picture. And this is literally a holistic game of chess where every move has some meaning behind it. Now, you might have strong leaders like Mr. Putin, you might have very intelligent leaders like the Chinese leadership, or you might have more inexperienced folk like Obama or even Bush before him who are merely spokesmen for the global power elite power structure. That's probably the the basic difference between Russia and the West and China and the West. In Russia and in China, you have sovereign nation states where you have very strong power structures responding to Russia and responding to China. In America, in Britain, in the European Union, you have uh, caretaker governments where the presidents and the prime ministers are basically CEOs and where they are merely subordinated to the global power elite that is trying to see how they can work their way around uh, national sovereignty, eroded piece by piece, like uh, CFR member Richard Gardner said back in 1974, an end run, he called it, an end run against national sovereignty, eroding it piece by piece, and that includes primarily the national, the, the, the sovereign nation states of America, of Europe, and, and even Britain. So, you know, we are seeing a transition, and it is becoming increasingly violent. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly, uh, you know, as, as we said, this is a struggle uh, between people that want to hang on to their sovereignty. And, uh, you know, when you look at Europe, for example, right now, you have some of those countries that aren't doing as well. Uh, Greece, Ireland, Portugal, maybe Spain is, is right behind. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of resistance from the people in those countries uh, to the sort of uh, bailouts uh, that are looked, looked forward to by this ruling elite. Uh, so it, it would seem to me that while you're concerned and I'm concerned uh, about the, about, about, about the, um, uh, the move towards a one-world government, there are also very powerful decentralizing forces uh, that are in play as well. Uh, you know, could, do you think, for example, that the European Union will hold together? Oh, he, 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 as you were speaking, I was rem- reminded of a very old uh, adagio from the old medieval alchemists who used to say in Latin, solve et coagula, dissolve something and put it back together in a different shape, which ties in with the Fabian Society's motto of hammering things uh, gradually to bring them more to a shape which is dearer to our heart's desire. They were quoting uh, 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 a Muslim poet, actually, Omar Khayyam from the 12th century. So in a way, why do I say this? Because they are, disso- they are, con- they are uh, managing the controlled dissolution and breakup of sovereign nation-states, sovereign currencies, sovereign economic systems, to put it back together into a system that is more to the liking of their heart's desire, as Omar Khayyam would say. I personally Mm -hmm. believe, Jay, that they are 
preparing global currency that will at least uh, replace the, the US dollar to a great extent. And when the time comes, which neither you or I know, and they're not going to tell neither you or me, when they f- feel that they are ready to make the transition, they will have everything in place. And they will just say, okay, we're going to let the dollar fall, we're going to let the euro fall, and we're going to say, but don't worry, everybody, we have a global currency. It might even be called the global dollar in place. And the European Union will not hold together because the European Union as Argentina in other aspects, has also been uh, an experimenting ground, a leading case to see how they can put together supranational government. The euro will probably split up. All you need to do is for the Germans to get very angry and to say, I'm fed up, I'm going back to the, uh, to the Deutsche Mark, and that's the end of the euro. So they know that there are two technical weaknesses in these currencies. In the case of the dollar, it's, uh, it's real hyperinflation that they are causing on purpose with quantitative easing one, two, and coming quantitative easing three, so all they have to do is one day tell everybody, hey, there's $30 out there, and it will hyperinflate over in, in a 24-hour period if they want, and the euro will just split up into its, its original currencies. Already there are some towns in Spain using the peseta, and you just cannot bring together under one currency such asymmetrical economies as that of Germany, giant Germany on the one side, and then tiny Portugal, Greece, and Ireland on the other. It's, it, in the end, it's, it's just not going to hold. Yeah, so what you're suggesting is that even though there's these forces of decentralization, they are perhaps shaping into the one world, into the one world uh, order, I guess. Uh, you, you know, Adrian, we have, um, we were expecting Daniel Eshton to be with us, and we missed him for one reason or another, I suppose a lack of communication on my part or somebody's part, but uh, we have filled an hour with you without any problem, and I've only started scratching the surface uh, we've got to have you back again sometime soon. I do want to ask you, though, one quick question uh, before we part company this week. I, China, where does China fit in in all of this? I mean, you know, now we're talking about a completely different culture. Or do you think it's possible, and it certainly seems likely, that a large number of the Western corporate interests have their tentacles into China in a great way, to a great extent, but, you know, Chen Lin uh, will be coming on uh, right after you. Uh, Chen is a partner of mine. He's very well plugged into what's going on in China, and I'll probably ask him the same question. Uh, we've talked about it from time to time. But if, if culture is one of the issues here, you know, and the Islamic culture is getting in the way of the, uh, of the Western culture that wants to be, wants to have uh, one world government, if, the, if it's a cultural bridge, then certainly I would think that that would be a gigantic um, impediment to world domination when it comes to China, which is definitely a rising economic power right now. What do you think? Yeah, well, first of all, I am not a China expert, but as a layman, I would just venture the following uh, comment, and especially because the Chinese are quite strong, uh, increasingly strong throughout Latin America and certainly throughout Argentina, and they are often exemplary in the way they they, they do things and the way they behave. I would say that we have to keep in mind a couple of things about China. First of all, it's not a completely hermetically sealed country. It does have strong Western corporate interests, strong Western banking interests inside of its borders. Secondly, it has a very shrewd uh, uh, leadership, which has literally, culturally, thousands of years of experience, whilst America has only two or three hundred years of experience as an empire. Uh, thirdly, I think it's very important to keep in mind that uh, contrary to America and contrary to all the former European imperial powers, whether it be Britain, Holland, France, even Spain, uh, China does not have 
have a, uh, uh, a willingness to become a world power. They want to be the regional power. That is what they have already become, uh, just, just by, by the weight of their, of their strength, of their numbers, of their economy. They want to be the country that calls the shots in that part of the world. I don't think that they want to colonize the, the, the world or anything of that sort. However, what they are doing, and I think the Japanese, in spite of all the dreadful problems they are undergoing, uh, also are starting to come to awaken to this fact, is that China and Japan will need to make an agreement along the lines of what France and Germany did after World War II. Let's stop clobbering each other, let's stop being enemies, and let's uh, gang up together against what are our common adversaries and so forth. And it would appear that there are signs that China and Japan, at their own speed, gradually will arrive at that. When they do, and you put Chinese numbers with Japanese technology, that's going to be a hell of a powerhouse, and that is something that we all know has the Pentagon up awake until very late at night. Mm -hmm. Well, that's an interesting uh, speculation because I know that you know there are cultural differences, serious ones between China and Japan. But but who knows? Uh, some really thought-provoking ideas from Adrian Salbucci. And Adrian, again, your website where people can follow your work is asalbucci dot com dot ar, right? Exactly, exactly. And uh, my email is arsalbucci with a b. Uh, at gmail.com, and anybody who, want, who's, who wants to write to me, I try to answer all emails. And that's excellent, and we're going to have to have you back again sometime. Sorry we missed uh, your friend Daniel with us today. Uh, maybe maybe just, just tell our listeners one more time the Argentine Second Republic Movement. If you could tell us in 30 seconds what that's about, just, just uh, as a parting note. Right. 30-second uh, summary. When you understand how the world really works, which is not the way CNN and Fox News and, and ABC, NBC, CBS, and the New Times tell you, and then you understand why your country, wherever you are, whether in America, Canada, Argentina, Brazil, Europe, uh, Egypt, when you understand why your country is in such dire straits because of the way the world power elite really works, then you understand why they, the global power elite wants us to think and act in a certain way, and they don't want us to think and act in certain other ways. So Second Republic merely does that. Understand what the global power elite don't want you to do, and do it. They don't want us to have an, a sovereign nation state, let's recover our sovereign nation state. They don't want us to have sovereign currency, let's recover sovereign currency. They, don't, they want us to do everything on a debt-based System, let's reject the debt-based system. They want our Republican institutions to be all dependent on the money power. Let's liberate our Republican institutions from subservience to the money power. And last but not least, they have perverted all our values and turned them upside down. Let's put our values right side up again. We call those pillars founding a second republic, whether it be in Argentina, in America, in Brazil, or wherever. And that's the basic idea, and anybody who wants to see some videos we have describing that, the website is www.secondrepublicproject, altogether, secondrepublicproject.com. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Adrian Sabucci, for being with us again. Uh, it's a pleasure having you. Thanks again for that delightful lunch you, uh, you, you bought for me, and uh, uh, down there uh, last week in, in Argentina, uh, in Buenos Aires. My pleasure, uh, a pleasure my, speaking my with pleasure, you. and let's do it again soon. Let's do it again, and let's have you on uh, again sometime in the near future. And this time, the next time, we will get your friend Daniel with us. Uh, but uh, this time, we couldn't seem to find him. 
uh, in Spain. Uh, next time we'll have him on. Thank you very much. Folks, don't go away. We're going to have my partner, Chen Lin, coming on with, uh, with me in just a minute after the commercial break. Don't go away. up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with bite. With operating gold mines in the Northern Territory of Australia, Crocodile Gold produced 82,000 ounces of gold in 2010. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometres. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm really pleased to have with me my friend and partner, Chen Lin. Um, he has one of the best stock-picking records, I think, of anyone you'll find. I would like, uh, if, if there's anyone out there that you know of who can do better than Chen did with one of his lesser successful accounts, I believe I'm uh, accurate in saying that, uh, where he took $5,400 in uh, December of 2002 um, and turn it into one and a half million dollars by the end of 2010. But we're really talking about, uh, I like to market from January 1st of 2003, um, and, and all the way through 2010, from $5,411 to be exact, to a million five hundred and fifty some thousand. Uh, pretty remarkable. So if there's anybody out there in our listening audience that can 
name somebody that's done better. I'd like to hear about those, uh, about such a stock picker. Uh, Chen writes the stock newsletter, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And it's uh, published and distributed by my company, Taylor Hart Money Advisors. Um, and again, that uh, remarkable track record that uh, Chen has was in his wife's IRA account. And we like to use that one as a measure of Chen's success because there's no new money going in, no money coming out. So it's easy to track that. Um, and you can go actually to miningstocks.com and you can see uh, you, you can see the chart and the, the numbers there for Chen Lin's account. Well, Chen uh, received a master's degree um, in mechanical and aerospace engineering from Princeton. And he worked in the internet and computer area while he founded a new startup, a few startup companies. Uh, after the internet crash of 2000, Chen was able to move his technology portfolio into the resource sector uh, with considerable success, as I just noted. And Chen employs a value-oriented approach and often demonstrates excellent market timing uh, due to his exceptional technical analysis. Chen, really thank you for being with us again. Welcome. Thank you, Jay. Glad to be here. Uh, it's just always a pleasure to have you. Um, uh, not just because you're a good stock picker, but because you're a gentleman. And I think one of the things I appreciate about you uh, is that you have remained quite humble, realizing that the markets are powerful and you have a great deal of respect for the markets. It's sort of like a champion swimmer, I suppose, or a surfer or somebody that's out there uh, realizing the power of the ocean, realizing the power of, of nature, and uh, you have to respect it. People who are successful do. Uh, I like to I like to refer to Richard Russell, who's been around. He's in his 80s, writing a newsletter, and he talks about how humiliating the market can make you feel. <clears throat> but uh, Chen, you know, you managed in the very difficult year of 2008, actually. To uh, I think you were in this particular account down only what four or five, six percent, some very nominal number, considering the fact that I know my model portfolio uh, had lost nearly half its value that year. How did you manage in 2008 to avoid the carnage that most people uh, suffered through? Well, I didn't avoid it. I just barely, uh, I, I did relatively well. I mean, consider the market was because I was uh, playing a very conservative portfolio. Okay, I yes. have a cash, I have a commodities, I, I play a... Uh, I I remember in uh, by the summer of 2008 I already sold all of my junior stock. I just uh, I realized uh, uh, the market is falling. Junior has been in bear market. I think at that time for like two years, almost two years, three almost over one year. So juniors has been lagging the market for a pretty long time, and then the general market is falling. So I think you know maybe it's time to to get out and then see uh, you know see. You know, to try to be conservative. So that's how I basically survived. Uh, I have a very good first half of the year 2008, where you know energy stock did very well with oil going to 147. So uh, so then I lost all my profit uh, and a little bit more uh, in the downdraft of 2008. At the end of 2008, I think by December, I start to buy again. Uh, that mm -hmm. right catch the bottom. So, um, so by the end of the year, you know, you know, on that account, I lost a little bit. Uh, other accounts, some more, some less. So, generally, I did reasonably well in 2008. 
Yes, you did. And so I want to ask you now, we've had another run-up since the bottom in the, of uh, March of 2009. It was really quite a contraction we had in the equity prices. Uh, any concerns about the markets now? Are you? I think you're less aggressive maybe than you were last year. But but what are your thoughts right now as we're looking at this equity market? Uh, yeah, I mentioned my letter a couple of times. Um, this year, I'm, I'm getting more and more conservative. Uh, there's a couple of reasons uh, about that. You know, one is the Middle East. Middle East. I'm afraid of oil will have another round to 147. We have a you know four dollar five dollar gas that will drive United States into double dip recession, as well as other countries, uh, you know industrialized or you know emerging market, uh, because they all depend on energy. Uh, also, there are some signs uh, in China that the economic has plateaued and that there are some problems with the housing market start to show up. So that's the thing I'm also very concerned because uh, China is. Uh, main driver for the commodity demand. So if that one going uh, having trouble, then we have we can have a serious problem with uh, you know with all the commodities, including energy-based metal and others. Um, Chen, I might ask if you can just talk a little bit louder. I'm afraid uh, we may be losing part of your words of wisdom. Uh, I, I know you're soft-spoken, but if you can uh, talk up a little bit, it might it might help uh, a little bit. Because uh, what you're saying shouldn't be lost uh, to anybody. Let me ask you, uh, you, some time ago you were concerned about China, uh, what you saw, If correct me if I'm wrong, but as I recall you were concerned that a lot of people, a lot of companies in China were not all that profitable and they were taking their excess cash and resources and buying commodities, as they're storing them and be speculating because they didn't need it necessarily for their own production. Uh, they were just buying copper and other metals. Is that something that has continued to go on, and uh, uh, is that something you might be concerned about? Yeah, that's something I'm very concerned about. Uh, that's basically the the speculation in Chinese among Chinese company as well as individual. Okay, uh, the China Chinese company recently, especially those export oriented company, are not very profitable. Some are not profitable at all. But what do they have? They have a line of credit with the bank. Okay, so they use that to speculate. I give you one perfect example. Uh, there is a bubble in nickel. Uh, I believe it's uh, the nickel bubble 2007, right? 2000 early 2000 nickel drove all the way to uh, to twenty dollars. Uh, mm -hmm. And then crash. Uh, I remember there was a boat like, uh, with a nickel that sank around the UK shoreline. <laughs> and I see NBC was saying, oh, the world is running out of nickel. <laughs> I remember I was uh, selling my nickel stock. I sold all of my nickel stock when that news broke. I said, that's ridiculous. But anyway, so when the nickel bubble bust, okay, and then I checked my source, and one of the largest uh, stainless steel uh, maker in China uh, is um, owner and uh, you know CEO committed suicide. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what happened was you know he he basically speculated in nickel, and he bought much more nickel you know for his company for next ten years, and then you know instead of making thin margin on the stainless steel, he's making money speculating in nickel. When the nickel goes higher, he's making a lot of money. When nickel goes down. 
bank called a loan, he couldn't pay. So he, he committed mm-hmm. suicide. So that's just oh. one example. That's one. That's a that's a real example. Uh, so uh, right now, how much speculation in China, in copper, in other base metal? I, I do not know. I don't have the. The, the data, but I can imagine there are a lot of speculation, not in China, but also outside China. There's some um, report I saw J.P. Morgan just bought like half of a world uh, copper production in some warehouse. Right, because wow. they, so, so those are speculation. There are also uh, a hedge fund in 2007 or something, they broke, they broke out, um, blow up, uh, the they're also speculating some base metal. I think it's copper. So there's a lot of speculation, not just China, but also outside China. But China has relatively not opaque. You know, it's very, uh, it's really opaque. People don't know that. But I yeah. can see, I can feel, I can imagine. But because I don't have data, because all these are secret, you know, the companies yeah. you don't know what they are doing. But I can imagine there is probably very large speculation. In China, among Chinese people, I think that, you know the base metal is very easy to speculate because they are cheap to store. Yeah, well, we we have certainly a lot of anecdotal evidence, as you're suggesting. You don't have the numbers, but uh, I can tell you that in my inflation deflation watch, for example, I look at items that you would expect to be going up a lot if you had a strong economy. I'm thinking in terms of. Companies like the automakers, the housing market, the uh, Walmart, maybe some of those that would be, uh, you know, would be selling to the average people. If you had a good, strong economy, a lot of those, uh, a lot of those items should should go up, but they're not. They're laggards compared to oil and copper and so forth. Uh, Chen, I'd like to touch a little bit on um, on on your personal background. You were born in China. Uh, your mother and father still live in China. Could you talk to us a little bit about your experience growing up in China and your education in China? Yeah, um, yeah. You I was single, a lone, a lone child. Did you have any brothers or sisters? <laughs> no, I'm the only child uh, uh-huh. in my family. So uh, it's not actually not due to the famous one-child policy uh, because when I was born, uh, you know, they were. Uh, the government was actually was encouraging people to have more kids oh, uh-huh. because they were on the blink of war with the uh, Soviet Union. Okay, so that, uh, that's something that the uh, government said, okay, if you have more kids, then, you know, we have more soldiers. So that was the reason. And um, uh, so, so I, I was born, actually it was a pretty tough time in my, in my family. Uh, when I was born, my my parents, they're engineers in China, uh, so they were uh, treated pretty badly because they have a, a pretty, come from, you know, family that uh, people think they're anti-communist family. Mm-hmm. So, uh, even, you know, my parents, they actually, they built the first computer for China, uh, which mm-hmm. was used for many things among them. You know, building nuclear weapon whatsoever, mm-hmm. but they built a computer, not a weapon itself. Uh, but they were still still very harsh. Uh, my my dad was sent to coal mine to to you know to hard labor when I was mm-hmm. born. So uh, my mom actually, you know, had a you know um, uh, when they, she gave me birth, she had some complications. My but my dad was very far away digging coal, and the people die every day in the coal mine. You know, Chinese coal. Mm-hmm. 
the very rush, uh, very harsh, and you know they, he didn't know I was born until a few days later. My mom hadn't uh-huh. sent a messenger there to tell him that you have a son. Uh-huh. So that was oh, uh, that, that was a day when I was born. You know that was, it was a pretty pretty tough time. Mm-hmm. But later, so, so so Chen, let me just ask you: your your father was a coal miner. At the same time, he had an engineering degree. Is that right? No, my father was an engineer. And then, but he was made to do hard labor because he was from a class that was uh, th- that was thought to be hostile towards communism. Exactly. So they don't they don't like him because they they think he you know he's he's not a communist, right? So okay. And then and then let me ask you then: at what point then did they start working for the government? Did the government then turn around and say, "Oh, we need all the talent we can get"? Uh, maybe this man working in the coal mine uh, could better be employed as an engineer that could help. Uh, you know, use technology to advance the cause of the Chinese government, and then they decided to to use him for that purpose. Then, if that's the answer, then did did that mean a better life for your parents at that point? No, actually, it was the opposite. Sometimes uh, you you cannot imagine what happened in China in Cultural Revolution because it's just completely illogical. right? Because mm-hmm. my parents are war engineer; they graduate from Beijing University. My dad graduated from Beijing University, you know, most prestigious university in China, and then mm-hmm. they were involved in building the first uh, computer. Out of the college, they helped by the government. Uh, they were involved in building the first computer in China, so the most advanced, supposed to be the best engineer in China, right? But mm-hmm. but when I was born, I was 68. 1966, they started the Cultural Revolution, and they think they are the bad people. So those mm-hmm. they, they, they turn around and say, oh, thank you for building a computer, but by the way, you're the bad people, so you should be punished. So mm. they send, send my dad to dig coal <laughs> instead of doing all the engineering work. No, not, not a very good decision, you would think, if, uh, if they're looking for the advancement of the state and the society as a whole, but it was an ideological uh, battle. Uh, what age did you come to America, Chen? Yeah, uh, the uh, I, I I came at, uh, in twenty years, so in eighty nine when I, you know, when I was twenty. When you were twenty, and yeah. you went to the university then, or what did you do when you came to the U.S.? Yeah, I, I just got my bachelor degree, uh, and then I came over. Uh, so I got into the your graduate program in Princeton. That's uh, you know in eighty nine. Okay, so you came to the United States with a bachelor's degree from China. Yes. And then went to Princeton and got your master's degree there. Right, exactly. I was on the PhD program, and then mm-hmm. you know after I got master, I did some research. I figured maybe I can you know working while finish on my PhD, but it was a wrong decision. <laughs> I was too busy doing computer, doing investment. I just have no time to to go back and finish up. Well, um, you. So you decided not to finish and, and get your PhD, and as I understand it, that was in aeronautical engineering. Yes, uh, my, 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 my mechanical aerospace engineering. Yes. Uh huh. And then, uh, though, you started doing extremely well, as we documented earlier in the show. And I might just mention to our listeners that these are not numbers that I've pulled out of the air, but Chen is kind enough to send along his uh, his monthly statements that document the progress that he's made with his uh, wife's IRA account. Uh, what, um, so you decided maybe that it was just, it made more sense to use your 
uh, your brains, your knowledge, your hard work to make money in the in the market rather than uh, going through a PhD program and helping somebody build a better airplane. <laughs> well, it's kind of ironic these days. You know, you, you make more money uh, trading gold stock than than digging out gold. <laughs> you make more money doing you know all these trading those in the engineering stock. You know those. Uh, Boring stocks and really making the plane, right? Making the <laughs> just the, this is a life, the world we are living in. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it, it certainly is, Chen. It's one that I like to remind our listeners and my subscribers very often that it, and I think it is really directly related to a fiat currency system rather than a gold-backed system because the people that have control can create money out of thin air and reallocate wealth. Uh, the people that have the control of the system. So we're seeing. Investment bankers make an awful lot more than the miners, the engineers, the people that go a mile down into the earth to mine the gold and so forth. Um, what did you? So did you study? What did you study in China? Was it to physics or something physics. like that? Yeah, I was studying physics. Yeah. Yes, um, and I and I think that you were, uh, as I understand it, I, I ran into another colleague of yours. Very interesting experience in San Francisco. I was talking to a group of people, and I mentioned your name, Chen Lin, and this. Uh, delightful lady come up to me, um, and I've forgotten her name. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I have, because I have her resume here yet. Uh, I mentioned that she was a classmate of yours and how you had excelled in that class. And, and this lady was no slouch either. She had two PhDs. She was well, in material science and in information technology, and she was working with NASA. Uh, but I can remember how she, uh, she was just amazed that she was meeting up with somebody who knew you personally. And I, I want to say it's it's really been a pleasure, Chen. I'm so glad you you contacted me. Uh, I think more and more people are starting to understand that uh, that you bring a lot of value to to investors. I might just uh, mention to those listening that you can get a trial subscription to Chen's letter if you call uh, Claudio Bossi, my assistant, at seven one eight four five seven one four two six seven one eight four five seven one four two six, or you can go to miningstocks.com. Um, so you worked then in the tech sector here in the United States, didn't you, Chen? I mean, you were uh, in the. I think did you work for IBM at one point in time, or as a programmer? Yes, I was. A, I was an independent consultant. Uh, I was hired by IBM, you know, to fix their uh, their problems. I mean, they were flying me over the world to solve the toughest problem. So at that one point, yeah, that was um, uh, late nineties. In the late 90s. And then did you get involved in the uh, dot-com uh, sector there for a while when it was hot? Yeah, yeah. I was uh, actually founded a couple of companies, uh, you know. Uh, it was an interesting experience, to say that. <laughs> so actually, I was in 2000. Uh, it was 2000, I remember, I was in California. I looked at the situation and I said, oh, this is uh, really a bubble. Um, so I decided just to get out of uh, technology. That was uh, like summer of 2000. At that time, the NASDAQ was still 4,000 points. Can you believe that? <laughs> and that was at 4,000 points. Uh, when when was this, Chen? That was the summer of 2000. 2000, okay. Yeah, that I decided, you know, that that's the end of the bubble, tech bubble. Did you, Were you able then to exit and, and take some profits out before the collapse? Yeah, I was, I was uh, sold out almost everything, uh, everything I, I, I have control of. So, so I, somehow, and I, and I don't understand it, but one of the questions I have for you, because I haven't been able to figure it out yet, and I've been working with you now for two or, what, three years, two and a half years, whatever it is now, 
and I and I was talking to you a little bit about uh, I was talking actually with Doug Casey down in Cafajate a little bit about your background and your expertise. I mean, how you've done. And Doug said, "Well, what is your what is Chen's method?" And I don't know that you have a method that you could say. Uh, this is the Chen Lin method. Um, I think that you're just basically looking at the world as it exists, gathering information and applying uh, logical, um, you know, logical repercussions uh, or relationships. Is that would that be fair to say? Yeah, I, I don't have a fixed method. I mean, generally, I'm a value investor, so I look at the fundamental, look at the you know, <laughs> bottom line. Uh, you know, the, the balance sheet is very important. Cash flow is very important to me. Um, and then, you know, look at the different sector by sector, company by company. I pick up the most under value that I can find. That's pretty much. Yeah, I, I would like to. Uh, you know, I can't find a commonality other than here's the way I here's the way I view your uh, your modus operandi is that you are value orientated, and it seems to me that you have on the top of your list a half a dozen companies or so that are almost stupidly I like to say stupidly undervalued values that make no sense. Uh, you know, if we had a rational, uh, efficient market they would not be selling at the ridiculously low prices. Sometimes it takes a long time for the market to figure it out. And the other thing I would say is that your time value of money, uh, you are very risk averse, which I guess is part of the reason you buy stupidly undervalued things. If you buy things that are ridiculously undervalued, and I know a lot of the companies you buy have nice cash flows to them, uh, you know, relative to their prices. So, but, but somehow, uh, Chen, you're able to look at different things around the world and put the pieces together. For example, one that comes to mind uh, was the Chilean earthquake, realizing that it was going to take the supply out of the markets, out of the global markets. At the same time, you understood in talking to your friends in China that there was a growing demand because of a rising middle class that started using things like, you know, I thought everybody used like toilet paper and sanitary napkins, paper pulp. Uh, that's an example. Um, and, and how did you come up with that? I mean, we don't know what you're going to come up with next. You're likely to come up with something that nobody can think about. But, I mean, that information was out there for everybody, you know, and yet you were able to see these two different seemingly, uh, you know, un, un, not unrelated when you think about it, but most people didn't put the two and two together. Uh, how were you able to do that? Oh, Jay, that's a tough question. <laughs> well, I, I see value, right? I see cash flow. Uh, I can see the demand um, and supply demand. Uh, you know, one thing is I have very good contact in China. I can see, mm -hmm. you know, what's, uh, what's going you know, most likely happen in China. And for the Chile earthquake, it was just happened to be a, 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 it's a devastating earthquake for sure. And then it hit the middle section of Chile. Uh, a lot of people, when they heard Chile earthquake, they rushed to copper, which is wrong. Copper is in north part. Chile is very mm -hmm. wrong country, so it's really hit the pop industry hard. Mm -hmm. and, and then with this, uh, one of the reasons when I really like it, we just came out of recession, and then people don't just don't like this sector. Uh, people have been they lost a lot of money in this sector for many many years, so people just. A lot of people don't afraid of it. They think the company going to go bankrupt. Right? <laughs> so I said, okay. Then they they price, in, they price in the bankruptcy, uh, and and but then the Chile earthquake changed the, the picture dynamic completely, 
and the pop company are minting money, not just making money, they're minting money. Uh-huh. I, was, I was just buy. I mean, remember, I was buying tin back at a dollar thirty. Today, it's trade broke six dollar already. They got another boost from Japanese earthquake. But uh-huh. you know, that, that, so that, you know, it's like uh, nobody really there care about this. Nobody really mm-hmm. cares. So I went uh-huh. to the hedge fund conference, and someone screamed at me, "Oh, you buy tin back, you guarantee going to lose money." Yeah, okay. Interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> this is a really good contrarian point of view. I figure myself as I bought more. Well, Chen, let me ask you: When it was selling at a dollar thirty, what kind of cash flow did it have then, before the paper pulp prices started to rise? Oh, they they was the immediate rise of paper pulp. Okay, so the analyst was wrong. Was they think paper pulp will collapse because mm-hmm. the short term boost and then went. Chile fixed their, you know, pop mill, the, the pop price will collapse. It didn't happen because the demand from China hold on, hold up. The, the, you know, the, the Chinese import just in, increased like 30% uh, in, in early this year. So, they, uh, so that's, that was the issue. They think it's just temporary boost and then it will be busted. It will, it will not last, but it was, they were completely wrong. So with them, you know, they're, they have... Uh, um, at that time, they were trading at below one-time cash flow, to put a word on that. So a- any company in any industry, I-, I look at the cash flow as if they're trading at below one-time cash flow. That's a phenomenal undervalue, right? Yeah, you I just see. basically look at the balance sheet, make sure they won't go bankrupt. And then mm-hmm. the cash flow, you know, each year, <laughs> the company's the cash increase, you know, pre-tax, the cash increase by, by its market cap. That's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's phenomenal. And then in this case, in the paper pulp industry, you can see those earnings rising dramatically. So uh, you put that logic together, and as you say, a lot of people were jumping on copper. They think Chile and copper, and they immediately, but they weren't, uh, somehow most people weren't able to see this. Well, Chen, we're just about out of time, and we, we should have uh, blocked out more time. But i got to ask you, uh, if you if you might want to share a couple of your top picks, what do you like most in gold right now, gold mining companies? What would be your top pick there? Yeah, the gold. I, I like uh, I like a producer, uh, some producer and explorer. Produce, explorer has been very hot. Okay, mm-hmm. producer has been cold. So so I like to have a balance. Uh, you know, I I'm still continue holding Oceana Gold, which is a producer has been out of flavor on the market for a pretty long time. I was talking to a, a friend of mine. Say, you know, all these producers, all they need to do is burn their mail and fire their their engineers. And then contractors that become explorer, their market cap will jump. <laughs> it's very funny. It's funny to this point. And so, yeah. so, 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 that, so that's why I like value. I see value in producers. So I'm still uh, putting pretty heavy weight on producers. Also, so, exploration company. I have a Pritium. That's a company yes. I I really like. I think it's also on your newsletter. Yes, Pritium from $6 to $14 in no time. Now they're doing a secondary offering. I remember I, when I saw that uh, secondary offering at 12 and quarter, I told my subscriber to reduce your position. Today it's already down $2 at 10 and a quarter now. Uh, mm-hmm. So I got a lot of questions when to get back in as a when they price in the private placement. I think mm-hmm. it probably should be this week. You know, they're mm-hmm. pretty getting close to bottom. So when they price in the private placement, you can use the price as reference and then back, buy back in your position. Or you can participate in your private placement. So that's yeah. a gold stock. Uh, you know, it's um, pretty high on my list. 
What is the symbol on that one, Chen, just for our listeners? Pritium. Pritium uh, is PVG. Oceana is OGC. Okay. Uh, what about oil stocks? Have you got a top oil pick? Yeah, oil stock. I have uh, this company. Uh, it's called Mar Resource. I think this is uh, really stupidly undervalued. Uh, probably a buy of uh, lifetime because it is trading at below one-time cash flow. Okay. Mm. Uh, it's just uh, all your energy company I couldn't find. I, I searched ar- around the universe. I couldn't find any company like this. Uh, mm. It's uh, it's drilling uh, their, their second well. It's going to be a third well. And then uh, after the third well, Q3, of Q3 earning. Remember, Q3 earning coming out in, in November. It will, it will show their cash flow, annualized cash flow will be over 300 million. The market cap only 200 something million. It's just, it's phenomenal. The only where, risk. Where, where are they operating, Chen? Yeah, that's a risk. The only risk is Nigeria. They, it's, it's operating in Nigeria. That's the only risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, they, Nigeria having a democratic election right now. Uh, so, uh, April 9th, supposedly, is their election day. So, if they go through that relatively peacefully, um, it, you know, it will be a big boost of the stock. I mean, that's that's basically the only risk is the country risk. But compared with Libya, you know, Egypt, maybe Nigeria is a little bit safer right now. Yeah. Well, anything else you like? Any any sort of special situations that you like right now uh, in in another commodity or in, in something completely unrelated to commodities? Well, yeah, I, I, you know, Timbak still back, you know, is my topic for the Japanese earthquake as well, because not only uh, they, they produce pop, they produce uh, lumber, which is, you know, they export to Japan a small quantity, but now they're gonna, probably going to export a lot more. They also produce paper. A Japanese paper mill got, you know, got hit very hard as well. So it's good for three lines, you know, not just pop, also paper. And um, you know, uh, and the lumber, you know, Sri Lanka uh, is doing phenomenal today. I think it did up a lot. I mean, it's up like twenty uh, percent since uh, Japan earthquake happened. So, oh, okay, Chen. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Uh, of course, you'll be back with us on a regular basis. I hope, and uh, we'll we'll keep asking you more questions about some of these areas, uh, things that you talk about, and and what you think is hot and what's not. So. Thanks, uh, Chen, for being with us. Folks, we're going to have to go to a break, and we'll be right back with my other partner, Roger Wiegand. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to underlying problems. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to triple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. 
He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit miningstocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. Barkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Barkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Barkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Barkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to uh, the third hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I uh, want to thank each of you for listening to this show, of course, and also want to thank our sponsors who make this show economically viable. And the sponsors for the third hour of today's show are Gold Bullion Development, Crocodile Gold, Legend Gold, Athabasca Uranium, Golden Minerals, Western Pacific, and Focus Metals. Well, I'm happy to have with me my other partner, Roger Wiegan. Uh, Roger writes... Uh, Trader Tracks, which is an excellent letter for people that would like to trade in the commodities markets and the futures markets, uh, options, stocks too. Roger covers some stocks and uh, a lot of very interesting ideas that Roger provides and also a very colorful, uh, literally and figuratively speaking, in his weekly uh, in his weekly missive. And a lot of people really just enjoy reading it, uh, not just for the ideas of making money, although they can do that. But there's a lot of very interesting uh, commentary there. Ro- welcome, Roger. Good to have you again. Uh, nice to be here, Jay. Really good uh, uh, out there on the West Coast or the Left Coast, as it's called sometimes. You uh, you sent me a chart today on gold. How's the gold market looking now? Well, we're nearing the end of the month, Jay, and we got uh, everybody's going flat. They're, you know, Thursday's the last day. You got April first on Friday, and the big traders and investors generally wind things down as at the as the end of the month approaches so in conjunction with that of course we've had a little bit of a technical pullback on the precious metals gold and silver not much but some and so we're just going to be probably flat to sideways uh i would say probably through thursday and then uh, the first day of the month being uh, friday that'll be uh, i think a firm it up basing day and then monday i think we go into new rallies for gold and silver all right, so uh, what's driving the market now, Roger? Well, not a lot of volume in the general stock markets, but what's driving the market 
in gold and silver primarily is two different things. Uh, the, the fundamentals on gold, which we've talked about for years, of course, uh, we've had an upswing in gold for 10, 11 years now. I don't see it coming down at all. In fact, uh, our mutual friend Jim Turk just sent out a nice report last couple of days indicating that the rate of acceleration, uh, he called it hyperbolic trading, is going faster. In other words, if you looked at uh, like one or two or three year sections of the rally in gold, uh, as we go into the second or third section of this whole rally, the acceleration is going even faster. And that's consistent with our technical view and also our fundamental view. This year, by the end of the year, we're looking for gold to touch a high uh, on our forecast of 1607, $1,607. Some are saying 1700. I'm just reporting what I see on my charts at 1607. Now, in along with that, of course, silver has been going even faster of late. And typically, when silver goes faster than gold, it's going to continue to do so because of the volatility and also the much smaller size of the silver market itself. Uh, silver today is on the May futures thirty-seven dollars and five cents. It's flat, but it's uh, the high is thirty-seven and a quarter. Uh, our next stop is thirty-eight dollars and forty-eight cents. Then we're going to see forty, forty-two and a half, and forty-eight. And again, I don't know whether I mentioned it on radio here before, but we want to caution our listeners and readers that eventually, pretty soon here this year, if we can touch forty-eight fifty to fifty-one dollars on silver. That's right around the old high for silver in the 79-81 major rally. Mm -hmm. A lot of people at that point, Jay, I think they're going to say, well, that's it, it's all over, we're going to sell. And if that, in fact, does happen, you could see silver pull back from $50 to $35. I'm not saying that's going to happen necessarily, but that's going to be the trend when we touch $50. But that's further and that's down the road. Uh, personally, I've got silver and gold spreads all the way into June and, and, and December, uh, along with our grain and some of the other stuff we hold. So we're looking at a long commodities bull market uh, for, uh, for till the year 2017. Uh, gold and silver could go even further. Gold in particular, I've seen two good reports from analysts that I admire. They're saying that gold could go to 2024. That's a long time. Well, that would not be inconsistent with Bob Hoy's views uh, in a major credit deflation, though, Roger. Um, Bob mentions that really we didn't see, and he, and he looks at the real price of gold, not the nominal price, because uh, he, and he measures that vis-a-vis -vis other commodities. If you're, if you're seeing commodity prices uh, maybe peaking in 2017, uh, and, you know, which is still another six years away, and uh, gold and silver maybe going out to 2024. That would that would suggest another rise in the real price of gold uh, that is extremely bullish for gold mining companies. You know, Hoy has gone back and looked at the last 300 years <clears throat> of these major financial crises, and the first four were UK-centric. Uh, the 1930s, of course, the U.S. dollar had become the world's reserve currency, and now the dollar is the world's reserve currency still, although maybe hanging on by its fingernails at this stage. Uh, there's a lot of concern that it won't remain uh, the world's reserve currency. But uh, the point is that in these massive credit deflations, Robert uh, Hoyt says, you see the real price of gold rising very dramatically. And I've talked about this a lot of times on my show. I know I've, I've shared this with you as well, that the price, the real price of gold went up very dramatically 
after Lehman Brothers, it's come back some now with the risk trade on, with the copper prices, oil prices, and other things. Um, <clears throat> I think largely, as, as Chen Lin was suggesting earlier in the show, uh, speculative in nature rather than being driven by the real economy. But um, but Roger, that's con that wouldn't surprise me at all to see that. And that's my goodness, that's uh, 2024 if it goes out that far. That's still another 13 years or so of bull markets. Well, I think that goes along with Bob Hoy's theory of, of uh, you know, the real value, nominal value, inflated value, adjusted values. I read Bob Hoy regularly because I admire his work, and almost always I'm in agreement with what he's saying. Uh, the man is brilliant. He's got a he's got a fantastic connection between history and economics. Mm -hmm. Some of us could only wish to have. So whenever I see his name come about, why I take a look. Okay, so you're so you're figuring that we're in a bull market uh, for commodities out to 2017. Let's talk about the equity markets in general. Where do you see uh, stock prices? Are you concerned at all? That, I mean, we've had quite a run here. I know that Chen is getting more concerned about stock prices. He's more cautious than he was a year ago or so. What are you? What are you thinking? What are your charts telling you about the uh, risks in stock prices now that we've had quite a run? Or have we broken through areas that might have been problematic, uh, making this, uh, from a technical perspective, looking even more bullish? Well, from the technical side, we've been wavering, and the fundamentals have been a little bit scary, too, with all the bad news recently. But uh, I'm along with Chen, and then I'm more wary than I've ever been. However, we have two or three technical indicators that we like to use which show us that the broader stock market should be a continual buyer. And the reason fundamentally, Jay, that I think that's true is the fact that New York has got a lot of new IPOs they want to get out the door between now and June. We've mentioned this before in our letter and on the radio. And I think on Miller High Water, they're going to do whatever they have to do, prop this stock market up and get that IPO business done uh, that's why I'm wary about what's going to happen in stocks come fall, because once they sell everything and it's out there, uh, how are they going to make their money? They've got to take their profits. So I, I think that event is probably going to come in the fall. Now, one of the key things that, that all our listeners and readers can look at, which is real easy every week, is to watch the NASDAQ index. For some reason, I can't explain why, the NASDAQ index is the leader of all the stock indexes. It goes faster, it's further ahead of the S&P 500, the S&P 100, and some of the other indexes that are out there. And it, as of right now, every indicator uh, in the NASDAQ index is well supported. The moving averages look good, uh, while some of the other indexes are a little slower, a little bit further behind and lower, the NASDAQ is popping up and we think it's going to keep right on going. So from our point of view, until some of these technical bases, uh, low, lower channel lines and some other indicators are violated, the stock market remains in a bull market. Yes, mm -hmm. it's very weak, and it's, it's, we're looking at it with uh, you know, jaundiced eyes, but uh, they're going to get that IPO stuff out there one way or the other. So here we are now at the end of March. We've got April, May, and June to get through the next quarter. And I think in that quarter, Jay, you're going to see rising stocks, and you're also going to see rising commodities at least for another uh, 10 days to 20 days, and then there would be a correction. But over the next 90-day period in the broader stock market, we'll see corrections. Uh, there's no question there's at least two of them out there on the cycles. 
Now, the second half of the year is another big question, and we've talked to other top analysts early today about that, and they're worried about the second half just like I am. However, in gold, uh, one, of the men- one of the analysts did mention to me today that he's of the opinion that uh, gold, even if we would go into another Lehman event this fall, um, it would, the people would flock to gold because it would be more out of fear than anything else. It wouldn't be out of a liquidity situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if I agree with that theory, but that is a theory. Uh, Roger? Yep. Okay, I, I lost your, uh, I lost the sound. Um, it, yeah, I mean, it's there's people that are really concerned. In fact, um, I'm reading a headline here from Martin Weiss. It talks, it says, White House economists predict crisis to dwarf 2008. Uh, just this last week, three congressional leaders, Senator Mark Warner, Congressman Alan West, and Senator Joe Manchin, publicly warned that we are approaching, I quote, financial Armageddon, financial Armageddon and uh, fiscal Titanic is the way they put it. And uh, then on Thursday of last week, no fewer than 10 former members of the White House, Council of Economic Advisors, including President Obama's former top economic advisor, Christina Romer, added their voices to those warning of a looming economic catastrophe. Now, this is the kind of thing that, of course, Bob Prechter, Ian Gordon, Ms. Shedlack, some of the deflationists on this uh, and uh, that we've had on this show have been warning about. Um, and, and what is uh, you and Bob, um, uh, Dr. Robert McHugh, a lot of times are on the same wavelength. Uh, McHugh's been a bit more bearish than you have, though. Do you, what is his latest thing? Well, he, he, he sticks to the technicals, too. He's been extremely wary and bearish as of late because a lot of these uh, prices and, and technical indicators were going flat. And they had everybody worried, and it's gone on for an extended period of time. However, as of late, I looked at his report this morning on the daily, and on the NASDAQ, he's on a buy-buy on all three of them. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, he's also showing some alternatives. You know, he always gives choices, which is a good thing to do, because nobody can call the market perfectly. But I feel that, you know, I'm, I feel strong enough about where I am right now that uh, next week we're looking for a gold bull market. If you look on the uh, 34-year cycle uh, calendar of gold, uh, normally what will happen this time of year, April 1st, it will jump up in a rally, and that rally will last normally about 10 days, and then after the 10 days, why, you get a uh, correction. Okay, we've got about two minutes to break, Roger, and we're supposed to have uh, Millrock Resources joining us. Um, if, uh, if today runs according to script, they may or not, may not be there, although I think Gregory Beischer will probably be calling in momentarily. But there were a number of other things we wanted to talk about today, and uh, as I say, there's two minutes left in this segment. Uh, I, I believe we were going to talk about, uh, was it the Middle East and some of those um, some of those problems? Is that what you wanted to talk about? Yeah, there's the, the Middle East is uh, obviously a cauldron right now. It's, it's, it seems to be spreading, and it's very worrisome, particularly as to the effects on the oil prices and gas prices. But I think that while it is of concern, I think that it's kind of a slow-motion situation. Uh, it has been spreading. It's, it's really spread now to six, seven different countries, uh, I can't name them all, but everybody watching the news can do that. Uh, we think that 
it eventually is going to end up in a mess. We don't know when or how. But from my view, I can't see that happening until after the end of the next quarter. Now, that's purely a, a, a prediction on my part because nobody can say when something's going to go sideways in one of those countries over there. I mean, it can literally happen overnight, as we know. However, as long as we're in position and we have risk control on what we're doing and we've got positions on that are fundamentally correct and we think that things are going to go right along, you can't really change so much your attitude. Now, some, some traders over the years, and we know a couple of them, they used to be speakers at the shows, uh, they're entirely out of the market because they're fearful of what's coming for the longer pull. That may be a good thing to do for somebody that's very wealthy and they don't have to make any money trading if they've got several million dollars or they've, if they've got enough money uh, in their hands, so to speak, uh, that they're happy. There's no reason to go out and invest in trade. But the majority of the world is not in that position. Consequently, we want to be invested. We want to have our trades on. But by the same token, we, we need to be very careful with our risk control so that if, if our trade doesn't work, we don't get knocked out of the game. Okay, Roger, we're going to go to break right now. Uh, stick around. I know I want to have you for the last segment of today's show anyway, so if you can hang in there with us uh, in the event that Greg is not there, we'll go on to, uh, to some more of these issues uh, immediately. Otherwise, we'll have you on for the wrap-up. Uh, folks, don't go away. We're expecting Gregory Beischer uh, to be with us with Millrock Resources, so don't go away. We'll be right back either with Gregory or Roger Wiegand. Don't go away. business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer-long by 20-kilometer-wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open-pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Great Panther Silver is a profitable primary silver producer trading on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol GPR. GPR operates two 100% owned mines in Mexico, has a solid track record of increasing production, and continues to add resources and reserves. GPR has developed an organic growth strategy that will see production increase by more than 65% over the next two years. Great Panther Silver is also generating excitement at its new discovery in Guanajuato and expanding its drill program. Look for GPR on the TSX. Crocodile Gold Corp is a new gold producer with bite. With operating gold mines in the Northern Territory of Australia, Crocodile Gold produced 82,000 ounces of gold in 2010. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometres. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 